Pushkin. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. Welcome to this week's program, where we're going to talk about one of the most challenging and controversial topics that I can think of, namely concentration camps. The phrase alone is enough to strike terror in your heart. And controversially, this phrase so closely associated with Nazi Germany and with the Holocaust has been used by some critics to refer to the current migrant detention facilities that the United States government is using to detain people at our southern border. To discuss the history and the politics, I'm very pleased to be joined today by Andrea Pitzer. Andrea is a journalist who loves to unearth lost history. And for our purposes today, the lost history that she's uncovered is that of the concentration camp itself. Her book, One Long Night, a global history of concentration camps is a deep dive into the term concentration camp, where it came from, and where it's going today. And she's also been an outspoken critic of the Trump administration's detention policy. 
Andrea, I want to start just by telling you my own story of how I came to expand on the uses of the term. I'm Jewish. Like a lot of Jews, I grew up hearing the phrase concentration camps and never distinguishing it from death camps or anything else that the Nazis may have done. And like a lot of people, I had teachers who had camp tattoos on their arms, and they and others used the term concentration camps in a kind of generic way. And then I realized that it was a term that originally had something to do with a concentration of people. And that got me looking into the history a little bit. And then when your book came out, I thought, this is so great. Someone's actually doing this in a, in a systematic way. So I guess I want to start by asking, is it the case um, that the first use in the English language, at least, of concentration camps dates to the Boer War, the, the rebellion against British authority in South Africa? Well, strangely enough, the phrase itself goes back to at least the middle of the 19th century, uh, at least in the British press. And it's possible it's appeared some other language that I haven't found. But the earliest version of it in the English language press I could find was in the mid 1800s in the Times of London. And it was actually a military term that meant something a little different. It was literally the concentration of forces sort of getting ready for an offensive or, a, you know, a defensive move or a battle of some kind. So it had this military term for military people before it transitioned to mean concentrating non-military people and doing this to civilians and isolating them from society in some way. The idea of the concentration of forces is usually associated with Napoleon's doctrine of war put a lot of troops together in the same spot and, and go for it and you're likely to, to overwhelm your enemy. So was the term being used by, uh, by the Times of London to describe a place where troops could be brought together in preparation for some kind of a very focused and concentrated attack? Exactly. Was, it, was there some connection between those ideas of concentration? Because if so, sort of fascinatingly, that connects up the whole idea of modernity and the concentration camp, which we'll obviously get to, with the idea of modern war doctrine. Uh, albeit in a very indirect way. Well, it, it is indirect in that instance, but it's fairly direct. When we have the first decade of camps, they are all, you know, sort of 1896 uh, and the 10 years that follows. All these camps are part of a military objective initially. They are doing something to civilians as part of a war strategy to defeat some kind of insurgency. And so I think there's this very natural move that happens. It's a very unfortunate move, but you can see the evolution of this modern war strategy bleeding over into how civilians are going to be treated. And, you know, there's this moment in 1896 where we sort of get this idea of reconcentration of civilians in Cuba under the Spanish Empire. But even before that, you had Spanish generals and British generals talking about rounding people up, talking about using this as a widespread policy. And I'm sure it happened sometimes. But as a really definite war strategy that was very clear and people understood that it would cause suffering to do this to civilians, that's at the very end of the 19th century is when that idea emerges. And this 1896 moment in Cuba that you were describing, that's before the Spanish-American Wars. What was the context and who was doing it and what language were they doing it in? So the Spanish Empire had Cuba as its colony for quite a long time and, and Cubans had been resisting that for quite a long time. And really from the middle of the 19th century to uh, the Spanish-American War itself, and then, of course, even after, the Cuban people, peasants mostly, were seeking uh, independence. And there were several rebellions that would sort of flare up and subside. And in the 1890s, one flared up, and the governor general there at the time 
said in a letter to Spain, look, the only way we're going to really end this and defeat these guys is if we sweep all the peasants off the countryside, put them in fortified cities behind barbed wire and burn the countryside. This is kind of a transitional version of the camp because what they're doing is they're pushing them out of the countryside and into cities that they're holding. And so people could come and go from the town, but they had no means to eat. They, their labor was basically agrarian labor. They didn't have skills that could be used in a city. And so you ended up with this very strange bifurcated town where people on the edges were literally collapsing in the street and dying from disease and hunger. And the rest of the city was going on about its business. And so it isn't till the Boer War, which we get to very shortly after, that you have those sort of tent cities out from towns that we think of as a very classic version of what's going to come. What were the British actually trying to accomplish with their tent city concentration camps during the Boer War as they fought the Afrikaans-speaking Boers' efforts at establishing their own state? Well, actually, it, when you look back at the war strategy in Cuba and in uh, Southern Africa at that time, it was quite similar. You were trying to defeat these sort of guerrilla forces, and they were using barbed wire. And it's worth noting that the patenting and mass production of barbed wire is a really important piece of what made this kind of detention possible, because you just didn't need that many guards once you could really hold people. But the British were basically using barbed wire and the strategy of sectioning off parts of the terrain and then clearing it. And so if they could sort of clear an area and hold it, then they could move on to clear the next area. But in order to do that, they needed to make sure that that people out in the countryside weren't feeding or harboring or hiding the the people that were fighting them. And so the approach to that was, well, let's just get rid of all the civilians entirely from the district. Andrea, you know, you said something fascinating in there. I mean, you've said many fascinating things already, but you mentioned that barbed wire was crucial to the process, that if you could put people behind barbed wire, which you could erect presumably very cheaply, unlike building a wall, then you could keep them there with fewer guards. And so as you were speaking, I just quickly Googled and discovered what I had not known, which is that barbed wire was first patented in 1867 and then improved with a new patent in 1874. So barbed wire was pretty new as a technology. Would it be an exaggeration to say that without the technology of barbed wire, we couldn't have had the modern concentration camp? No, I think that's absolutely true. I think the other thing we have to add in, it wasn't quite as important in the first four or five years, but it became quite important later, was also the mass production of automatic weapons. Because if the barbed wire slows people's ability to escape, and then you have guards that can kill a lot of people in a very short burst, then it sort of locks the prisoners inside the detention camp. And so I would say that between those two inventions and sort of mass productions, because you really had to be able to get a lot of it to a far-flung place to make this work. There were other kinds of detention before, some of which were really close to what concentration camps would end up looking like. Native American reservations in the U.S. we can think of as the by far the, the very common uh, precursor for concentration camps. And in some cases, almost the only difference was this ability to detain people, to actually hold them in place without assigning a huge guard force. And I think that that's where we cross the line over some equally horrific, sometimes more horrific versions of detention that happened previously. Slavery, forced labor camps, uh, Native American reservations. We cross into this modern idea of detention, not to steal people's labor, not to steal their land, but detention behind barbed wire for detention's sake that marks the concentration camp idea. 
The other thing that I thought was so fascinating when you were describing how the, the techniques that the British used in the Boer War were similar to those that the Spanish used in 1896 in Cuba was that it's a reminder that much as is the case today where a theory of counterinsurgency becomes popular and then it spreads from one military to another military to another military. Similarly, already in the 19th century, in the early 20th century, you had experimental military efforts to manage guerrilla warfare, what we today call insurgency. And one imperial power would imitate what another imperial power was doing. So it's sort of interesting to see ideas about military strategy, including the concentration camp, moving from place to place. Well, there's two things with that. And I think that the idea of the moving is is important. This is an international thing from very early on. At the same time, when you have the same tools, when you have the same kind of training and you have the same technology at your disposal, things also kind of independently spring up. So sometimes there's a direct influence and sometimes it's just everybody has a hammer at hand and hey, you know what you yes. can do with a hammer. Uh, I, I think that yeah. that's a fascinating thing. But the other thing is that you were talking about counterinsurgency strategy. Today, we have so much concern and, and so much uh, infrastructure built around dealing with this idea of terror and terrorism. It's important to note that concentration camps rise out of counterinsurgency strategy and they never really abandon it. What happens is that who is game goes from people in battle and people who might be actually showing up to shoot you or kill people in your view of what's happening in the world. It goes to people who are in society next to you who aren't wielding weapons, but are somehow undermining and destroying your society. But this idea of rooting out that dangerous dissident element that is going to destroy your society is at the heart of why concentration camps become acceptable and used and are used still today. That seems like a, an excellent point to transition to World War II. And let's start with uh, the, the Nazis' use of concentration camps. And then we can also talk about the Japanese-American internment camps. You, you hinted, I think, if I'm understanding you correctly, that from the idea that you gather up and concentrate and imprison behind barbed wire the people who you consider to be a threat in a counterinsurgency, you can naturally evolve to imprisoning the people whom you see as a threat because of who they are. Um, and that could lead to the internment of political prisoners, which was the Nazis' first move, um, and then ultimately to people who were seen as kind of existential enemies, like like the Jews. Is that is that the process that took place uh, in in Nazi Germany? It is, but I think there's this transition moment we want to be sure not to skip, which is those first far flung colonial camps, which I will say held mostly women and children and had horrific death tolls. I mean, tens of thousands, mm -hmm. more than a hundred thousand. That really shocked the world, and it was seen as a barbaric thing to use these camps. But what made it reasonable, and by the time we got to the 20s or 30s, for countries to start using them again, was that they were used in World War I. So it goes from this very discredited, you know, brutal strategy of military war uh, in the battlefield areas to, in World War I, the idea sprang up again, and it moved from out in far-flung areas into the centers of power. So you had detention camps let's say you were German and World War I broke out and you were in London, you were put into a camp there. You were put into a civilian camp in the area and they had them in Berlin. And by the end of the war, they had literally covered six continents and the Red Cross was investigating uh, and visiting hundreds of different locations in dozens of countries. You had a bureaucracy of detention show up. 
and the death tolls from these camps, because everybody wanted to be seen as running the ones that were fair and just, it was a real propaganda war that was going on. By the end of that war, they had rehabilitated the idea of this kind of detention. And, and it was called concentration camps at the time. What we call it now is internment. And then there was this idea that internment was a reasonable thing to do and that it didn't cause harm and that everybody didn't have to die. So after World War I, concentration camps are used everywhere. It becomes perfectly legitimate to lock up civilians in anywhere in the world, essentially. And that's where you end up with the early Soviet camps. And then in the 30s, the Nazi camps, when they first began, they looked very much like something that had been done before. And I think the alarm bells did not go off in part because the Nazis hadn't yet figured out that camps would be at the heart of the genocide that they wanted to conduct. But also alarm bells didn't go off because people saw this. They had seen it all the time. It didn't look that different than things that they saw unfold around them in the 20s and 30s and during World War One. Andrew, can we talk about citizenship in that crucial transitional phase that you just described? Because during World War One, um, correct me if I'm wrong, it seems as though these slightly better internment camps or concentration camps, the ones that were, as you said, rehabilitated the reputation of the camps, were designed for basically civilians who were citizens of a country you're at war with. So an enemy's non-combatants. So was citizenship the primary criterion during World War I for the creation of these camps? It very much was. There's hundreds of years of laws on the books about, and most countries use them, about this idea of enemy aliens. If somebody is alien to your country and there's a war, you can do just about anything with them. And that's been true for a long time. But what was different was that it had been more largely applied to individuals. So if you were an individual enemy alien in the eyes of the law and there was some suspicion about you, there was great leeway in what could be done to you. But World War I marks this moment where you don't have to have individual suspicions about that person. We're going to apply that alien law to whole groups of people, regardless of their motivations or their actions or whether you think they're a spy. We just are going to sort of push that over the brink and use that existing law, and we're going to lock up vast numbers of people. So then once you're willing to do that to one group of people, what history teaches us is you just have to find the group you want to target and either take away their citizenship or somehow move them outside those protections. And so from World War I on, the process really becomes how do you strip those rights of citizenship away from people so that you can do something to scapegoat them and lock them up? You're drawing a straight line here, I think, to we'll come back to the Nazis, but drawing a straight line here to the Japanese American internment camps, because after all, those included a combination of people of different kinds of legal status. There were naturalized people from Japan who were U.S. citizens. There were some natural born U.S. citizens who were the children of people from Japan. And then, of course, there were some people of the older generation who were, in fact, themselves still Japanese citizens and fit in some broader way under this enemy alien category, because after all, the United States and Japan were at war. But then all of those groups get lumped together in the exclusion order from the West Coast and then ultimately in the in the internment camps, which the FDR actually called concentration camps. So that sounds like it's a, in connection with this idea of the enemy alien being being locked up. And obviously, you know, not to give too much of a spoiler uh, alert, but we are, we are going to talk a little bit later on about the contemporary camps that the United States is using to hold non-citizens and, and undocumented persons. There's obviously a, a citizenship component that's crucial there as well. Yeah, it, this idea of the alien and the citizen becomes 
so central to all of it. And in, it's worth noting that in World War II as well, there was very little in the way of any threat from this community. And in fact, Naval Intelligence wrote a report saying, we don't need to lock people up. And it's fascinating to me, this history in which uh, you had the you had J. Edgar Hoover of the FBI against the idea of internment. You had the attorney general at the time against the idea of internment. You had Roosevelt initially not wanting to run concentration camps to put this whole community in. But it became this political fight. It became, some people argue, an economic fight over the really productive and fertile lands that were being farmed by this community. Uh, and certainly what we see in every concentration camp uh, setting arose here too, which was the the useful vilification of a group of people. So if you vilify this group, if you demonize these groups, what can you extract from that politically? And it turned out there were a lot of people that could extract things politically. And so, you know, everybody thinks of this as a panic response. So we locked these people up in camps. That was wrong, but they didn't know better. They knew better. And it was this systemic thing that happens again and again with camps that sort of steamrolled it and took it the other direction toward incarceration. You mentioned earlier that in Nazi Germany, the initial concentration of Jews was not focused yet on what came to be called the final solution of, of ultimately murdering and eliminating the, the Jews of Europe, but initially was part of a, not exactly an anti-insurgency strategy because there was no Jewish insurgency, but rather of a, let's gather up people who might we perceive as hostile to us. Uh, it's a long and complex story, but would you give us just a shortened version, a compressed version of how the concentration camps that you've been describing from the 1890s through the 1930s sort of bleed into the creation of actual death camps in World War II? This is the question that is really at the heart of the issue that today people are wrestling with on what do you call a concentration camp? What gets to be called a concentration camp? And while that issue goes back, actually more than 100 years, people have debated this question. These first years of Nazi camps, I think, can help make it clearer for us. In those first years, it was a terror strategy employed by the Nazis to stifle dissent. And I don't think most people realize that German Jews were not rounded up in groups to be sent to concentration camps until Kristallnacht near the end of 1938. So those camps existed for five years, five and a half years, really, before you had mass roundup of Jews. What happens before then is exactly what you're saying, the rounding up of dissidents, the rounding up actually of homosexuals, the rounding up of people who were seen as vagrants, uh, gypsies, what we would now today call Roma and Sinti people were rounded up that way. And in those first years, the Jews are being attacked by the Nazis in Germany, but it's mostly through the law. They are stripping them of citizenship. They are saying you can't work in a hospital. You can't use a hospital. You can't hold a professorship at a public university. And it isn't until I believe, and, and certainly there's room for a lot of different ideas, but after Kristallnacht, when they arrested tens of thousands of Jews and held them in camps, that the world really didn't do anything. And they ended up releasing, actually, those first five years. And even after Kristallnacht, more than 90% of those Jews were released. There was horrible violence done. Some people were killed. So I'm not minimizing that terror of the Jewish community at all. But even then, the camps were not an extermination tool at that point. It isn't until they still have uh, members of the Jewish community that are not leaving. And at that point, they can't leave. No countries will take them. There's almost no country that is willing to harbor Jews at that point. And the, the Nazis realize that they're not going to be able to push this community out of Germany. And then, of course, when Hitler invades, Germany is moving through terrain in which 
there are whole towns that are majority Jewish. So instead of the one or 2% that are estimated German Jews to have been before the war, they suddenly have these vast Jewish communities to deal with. And what are they going to do with that? And this is where we end up with the debate that resolves in the idea of this final solution. And I don't think you can get to that death camp system without those concentration camps being open for years beforehand, with them developing strategies, with them looking at tactics and techniques of control and starting to experiment with how do you kill a lot of people. I don't think that you can get to the death camps without having those non-death camps in place. And it's those non-death camps that I'm calling concentration camps because the extermination camps were simply meant to kill as many people as quickly as you could, bringing bodies in, executing them and getting the bodies out. In fact, I, I remember actually very vividly when I was a student uh, having an older scholar explain to me why it was that we hear the name Auschwitz all the time, what the largest of the concentration camps ultimately, and so rarely hear the names of camps which were pure extermination camps, like Belgettes would be a, a great example of one that's not a, a household name, but at which hundreds of thousands of Jews were, were murdered. And he explained to me that the reason was that many, many people survived Auschwitz when liberation took place. That is to say, many people died, of course, huge numbers of people died. But when liberation came, there were still people alive because it was a labor camp, um, not purely a death camp. There was an attached uh, death camp as well. But at a place like Belgette's, 99.9% of the people who came through the door were immediately murdered. And so there weren't survivors to say, I survived this camp or tiny numbers of survivors. And so as a consequence, those are not as salient in our minds. And I think that I've always thought that that may be partly the explanation for why in popular language, we often don't distinguish concentration camps or death camp from death camps. It's because the survivors whom we were fortunate enough to know were mostly survivors of concentration camps rather than of pure death camps. I think you're absolutely right. Auschwitz represents something that um, in people's minds is the epitome of the death camp, but it actually is one that made the transition and continued as a concentration camp, even while it was a death camp. And I think that that's the lesson to learn is that it is actually possible to go from one to the other. And while I don't think the particular uh, centuries old hatred of Jews and political manipulation of that that happened, you know, worldwide, especially in Europe in the centuries before the Holocaust is going to be replicated in the U.S. or in Russia or in China. I think that there are pre-existing hatreds and prejudices everywhere. And even if we think that they will never culminate in something like the, the deaths that happened in the Holocaust, Auschwitz is this instrumental point to realize that it is possible to make that leap. And why would we want to have the concentration camp there as the setting from which something more horrible can come? So now I want to transition, Andrea, from this fascinating, important, uh, searing history to the contemporary political debate over the border detention facilities that the U.S. has built and has been using extensively in, in recent months and years. You've been very vocal as someone who has written the leading history on this about how you see these current internment camps in the New York Review of Books, for example. You wrote a piece, the title was quote, some suburb of hell, America's new concentration camp system. Did, did, first of all, did they give you a say in that title? Was it, was it, were you, were you at least have supervisory authority? I did not, which is normal in journalism. So I don't, I don't take issue with that. You often don't get to pick your headlines, but I don't no, I have a problem with don't, it. Yeah. But, but, but you're okay with it. So t 
tell us, first of all, what your position has been on the obviously extraordinarily contentious question of how these terms should be used today. So the definition in my book of a concentration camp was the mass detention of civilians without trial on the basis of identity. And that could be a religious identity, political identity, racial or ethnic identity. And so literally from the moment that President Trump declared his candidacy, came down the escalator, we immediately heard in 2015 the rhetoric of Mexicans as rapists. Uh, I mean, we soon got into this question of how many people was he actually calling animals that were south of the border and arguments over how big that group was. Uh, but the, this dehumanizing rhetoric of people over the southern border literally started from the moment the candidacy began. And when you have somebody with a clear animus, it really sets the tone for something that is very clearly a policy of exclusion and elimination and uh, really motivated by the very profound things that have started concentration camps. And so if everything were allowed to operate without that animus and without that motivating factor, you wouldn't get to what we have. You don't get to what we have by having a rational, realistic decision about what is the best way to do this. Although that would be disputed by if we had someone, you know, in the studio from the Department of Homeland Security or from the Trump administration, they would say something different. I mean, I'm not saying I would I would buy it, but they would clearly take the view that there is genuinely a huge number of of people crossing the border, that um, that there is a need to detain because otherwise people will will escape into the into the United States and will not be found. I mean, and that once you're detaining large numbers of people, you need some mechanism for doing so. Again, I'm not saying we have to accept that argument, but they would make that argument. And so it seems worrisome to me that we would use the term concentration camp or not use it based on who's right on the facts of whether these camps are in fact necessary. So first of all, um, I'm trying to take this on in a very practical, serious way, like to not just be throwing the word concentration camp around in some willy nilly fashion. When you are dealing with surges at the border, when you are uh, looking at uh, some of the situations that have arisen historically, it might be almost impossible to deal with them without having people housed somewhere for some period of hours or days. Literally having any immigration system is probably predicated on having people in a place for some period of time. But the, the crossing over of that is that the detention becomes the point. I mean, even people coming into Ellis Island would have to wait sometimes for processing. If yeah, they, My family members certainly did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so I mean, so I, I want to be clear that it isn't just like who's presenting which facts. It is literally immigration is a process that, that often would require holding people while they're processed for some period of days or some, you know, some small manageable period when the goal is clearly to move them through that process. But wouldn't the, wouldn't the Trump administration say the point is not to detain? We would much prefer to send all of the people in these facilities back where they came from. That's the administration's stated goal. But they would say, uh, because of international and U.S. law that requires uh, processing and requires in some circumstances a hearing if someone makes a claim to asylum, we're therefore stuck with these uh, detention centers. So you say the point is detention, and they would say the point is not detention. We would rather not detain anybody, but it's the legal system that's requiring us to. The thing about that is that everything that has happened since 2015 has pointed the the meaning of what they're doing, not to things that solve practical matters, but 
to punitive measures. We had John Kelly talking months before the family separation policy was put in place that they might do it as a deterrence. Something that is a deterrence is a punitive approach to keep people, to make it have a cost to do something. In addition, when those policies that were first paid attention to last year in the first half of last year that kind of culminated in the family separation policy a little over a year ago, there was not the surge that we are having now. That is in part a byproduct. These things were done in advance of the larger numbers coming. You did not see the the big waves that we've been having in recent months that some people are attributing to Trump's discussions of closing the border and this fear that they may not be able to get in if they don't get in now. And so I think it's disingenuous to say we're doing this because of the numbers. But um, I want to be honest and fair that a mass immigration system, you're going to have to have people housed somewhere. And the difference between that and a concentration camp is in part, how long are you holding them? Is it indefinite? Is there a plan? Will they be released? And do they know when they will be released? And is there a punitive aspect to it? And if detention, if mass detention is the point of the thing, which it is here because the Trump administration has been detaining all kinds of people that these children that it could release that have relatives in the U.S. that are waiting to deal with them. If, if it were a priority, if they wanted to make it happen, they would not need to be doing this. There's I believe that there is a very public detention centered aspect in which they're trying to mm-hmm. to focus yes. that. But also the um, the the idea that you could just leave, which a lot of people say, I have talked to border reporters who have said, no, some people have said, oh, my God, don't take my child from me. We will leave. Mm-hmm. And it's too right. late. They can't do it. So late. this they're idea that that they are just allowed to go is not mm-hmm. true. It's not accurate. Andrea, I just want to close with uh, a different angle of critique that comes not from people who say that the Trump administration doesn't intend to create concentration camps, but who say, we share your sense that this is a terrible moral wrong, but we believe that the term concentration camp, notwithstanding the history that you've uncovered, has such a close tie to the horrors of the Holocaust. And arguably, some would say to the unique circumstances of the Holocaust, the association of the concentration camps with death camps, that therefore we shouldn't use the terminology, not because we should be careful about using that to condemn the United States, but rather because we should be protecting the unique legacy of circumstances of historical historical memory. What's your thought on, on that line? I think if people out of uh, respect for memorializing the millions murdered, a really unparalleled thing uh, in history, you know, in, in the camps of the Holocaust, if they want to not use that term themselves, I understand that impulse and I, I, I respect that. But for myself, there is 40 years of history of things called concentration camps that the world has largely forgotten that are how we got to the Holocaust. And to not realize that the Holocaust was made possible by these earlier camps that were concentration camps that we are repeating the history of today, I think by not naming that, uh, erases that history in a way that makes the Holocaust seem as if it happened from nowhere, which is a really dangerous historical idea. But also knowing that we are repeating that history and calling these concentration camps tells us something about what is going to happen next, because we have a lot of case studies from those early camps and we can have a pretty good idea of where things will go. And by not calling them that, I think we look away from 
the likelihood of what is going to happen next in what we're doing today. Andrea, thank you for that very thoughtful uh, and I think in many ways powerful response to to that concern. And thank you for your historical work in clarifying uh, the very complex history of concentration camps. I think we're much better off for understanding and, and gathering what that history shows. Well, thank you for the chance to talk. Listening to Andrea, I was gripped by two strongly competing impulses. On the one hand, as I understood more deeply the history of the concentration camp itself and where it came from, I was really struck by the ways that any mass detention of civilians can credibly be considered a concentration camp. Andrea is right when she says that without an understanding of that history, we can't understand where the Nazi camps came from, and that it's very important to keep that history in mind as we remember that many concentration camps are not death camps, but are camps started, albeit for political reasons, by any government that's trying to detain large numbers of people in order to protect itself. On the other hand, I was also powerfully influenced by the consistent feeling that most concentration camps throughout history have been designed to have some transformational effect on a piece of territory, that they're designed to move people off of one piece of land, to take over some piece of land, And that's not really the case for the migrant internment camps and facilities that the United States has been creating, because after all, the goal of those camps is, even if one has the most critical view, to move people out of the United States. Ultimately, going forward, what we need to do when we look at and understand the conditions, often the terrible conditions in these facilities, is to make sure, as a democracy that believes in human rights, that nobody is being detained in those facilities for punitive reasons, and that the conditions in those facilities don't even begin to approach the terrible conditions that have been present in concentration camps over the last century. The more we do to communicate that, the less likely history is to attach the terrible term of concentration camp to these facilities. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Lydia Jean Cott with engineering by Jason Gambrell and Jason Rostkowski. Our showrunner is Sophie McKibben. Our theme music is composed by Luis Guerra. Special thanks to the Pushkin Brass, Malcolm Gladwell, Jacob Weisberg, and Mia Lobel. I'm Noah Feldman. You can follow me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. This is Deep Background. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus.